HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, live from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks, and today we are going to be taking a trip kind of around the world. We're going to be looking at Northeast India, um, a place in the world that produces some of our finest teas, and we're going to be exploring the lives of the folks producing those teas. We're going to be joined with by two guests today. And to start us off, we have Sarah Besky. Sarah is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology and the School of Natural Resources and Environment at the University of Michigan. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So you recently published a book, The Darjeeling Distinction, Labor and Justice on Fair Trade Tea Plantations in India. And I'm curious, how did you start, um, where did kind of your interest in, in tea and tea plantations come from? Well, honestly, I, I drank tea, and I, I wanted to know more about it. I had worked in um, Nepal on various kind of projects in college and, and after college and before grad school. And when I went to grad school in anthropology, um, I was just kind of looking for a project um, that was that, that asked questions about labor and environment, but also kind of um, got at a global circulation and, and social justice. And so that just kind of brought me to tea because like, my, my own kind of practices were implicated in, in tea production being a tea drinker. Yeah. So I know that we are going to be asking you to cover some really um, complicated and, and broad topics in a very short period of time. So I want to apologize in advance. Um, but I'm hoping what we can do today is kind of, uh, you know, set, set a little bit of an outline for folks to start to understand um, what this tea, what the life of a, a typical tea worker looks like um, in the regions that you studied. And maybe you can give us a sense of what are some of the jobs or tasks, and, and who are the kind of people that, that make up those folks who are growing the tea? Sure. So, um, you know, I'm going to talk all about um, plantations in particular, and so that's where my work was 
Um, so the a plantation in Darjeeling, India, um, is it comprises both um, permanent and temporary laborers, um, and about sixty percent of the workforce, uh, sixty to seventy percent of the workforce is um, is women. Um, and so anything that kind of constitutes hand labor, um, so plucking as well as sorting and pruning tea, um, is all done by women. Um, generally, things that are done by, with machines. So that's the kind of firing and drying and withering of tea in the factory, as well as the spraying um, and other kind of more higher level um, mechanical work is are, are, is done by men. So there's a, there's a pretty distinct gender division of labor on on plantations. And so the working day is you know from seven to four in the morning with a hour long break in um, in in the middle of the day. And um, nine months out of the year, women pluck tea. Um, so it's unlike coffee or or wine, right, which are these annual harvests. Um, tea is something that you pluck every day, and depending on the day and the season and even the plantation, right, those all constitute kind of different vintages. Um, so the, the ecology of tea is very different than um, for, for those of you who are from, you know, familiar with, with coffee, um, which is, right, which is um, the, the coffee berries get red and then you pluck them. Um, it's, um, it's something that, that, is, that requires constant attention, and, um, and, and so that's, that's why there's a large permanent labor force on plantation. And now I want to talk a little bit about this term plantation. You know, what does that mean, and where does that kind of setup come from? Sure. Um, so we all probably have some sort of an idea of what a plantation is, generally probably rooted in our own, you know, uh, histories and experiences with, you know, the U.S. South or con production. Um, and there, there are generally variations on the theme. Um, plantations imply that workers live and work on a, on a plot of land that they do not own. Um, that um, in the case of in the case of Indian Indian tea plantations, um, plantations are actually leased by, um, from the state government by owners, um, and those owners, um, you know, uh, give workers a daily wage, which is actually kept artificially low because workers um, or owners are also suppo- um, supposed to and obligated by labor law to um, provide facilities or what, what, what they call social costs, which include uh, food rations and housing and road repair and nurseries and milk in those nurseries and a various other, you know, various other kind of, um, kind of, you could call welfare structures um, on the plantation. So um, workers are, you know, in, this, in a similar sense, bonded to the plantation by, um, by the fact that they, they don't actually receive enough cash to, um, you know, it's, it's kind of just a, you know, just a subsistence level amount of cash. Um, but but all the kind of general um, day-to-day necessities are are provided for, like housing, like um, like basic food rations, which include rice and and flour. So I know that you know there is a caste system within India, and I'm wondering, you, you know, you kind of touched on the challenges with regards to you know deciding like, hey, I'm I'm done, you know, working on the tea plantation. I want to leave, and some of the barriers there. But can you give us a sense of like within the the um, kind of agriculture community within India, like, are where do tea workers kind of sit on that kind of prestige hierarchy? And are you kind of born into picking tea? I mean, what's the kind of labor flow look like? So tea is not a caste occupation in any respect. Um, caste is not necessarily um, something that, that, that matters in the sense it may, may matter in other um, locations. Um, uh, so 
I mean, generally, but you are in a way kind of born into tea because um, jobs are not, it's, there's not a free market for labor. Um, you know, so if you're my mother and you retire from, from plucking tea, you can pass that job to me as your daughter. Um, and so that's kind of, that's how jobs are generally transferred. There's a kind of a finite number of jobs on a given plantation and they're transferred through kin lines. Um, so it's not, it's not like a caste occupation and you're born into it in that respect. It is something that, um, you know, so a job exists and it can be transferred between family members. And as far as like deciding that, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't want to work on it. Like, I'm just wondering if I'm growing up on a plantation, um, like what are my options look like as a, a young girl or a teenager? You know, are folks mostly staying within that system or is there some flight there? Well, because there's only one job, um, you know, say, say again, you're my mother and you have four or four children, only one of them gets that plantation job. So your other three children, um, they, their, their options are quite limited. Um, education in Darjeeling, though, I mean, it was kind of this fashion of colonial education. Um, uh, there, it's, it's generally it's fairly good, but it's expensive, and, and work only you know a very few number of workers' children um, go on to college and um, um, are, are kind of are able to kind of have um, the capital to to access those realms. Um, and there's no jobs in Darjeeling outside of tea and tourism. Really, um, there's there's three industries: tea, timber, and tourism. Timber is a state-run um, venture and is just kind of it's, it's just a different thing. And I'll. Um, but but yes, yeah, so you have really kind of two options: it's tea or or it's tourism, and and other, otherwise you have to leave. And um, there's um, there's there's a great number of liter- you know amount of literature on this, and many people have talked about it. Um, but you know there's there's kind of um, kind of ethnically appropriate labor that was that was de- that was that was categorized by the British. The British you know the, the British kind of laid over the landscape of of, of people that they conquered. Um, like that certain people were good at certain kinds of jobs. And so Nepalis, right, which is kind of uh, the, the, the labor force of Darjeeling plantations, were kind of ethnicized as good at driving, good at service labor, like working as nannies or as domestic servants. Um, so we kind of see these colonial legacies um, today um, kind of uh, re, remade um, while, you know, so workers, um, children go on to be domestic servants in Singapore or drivers in Delhi. Um, those are kind of the options that workers have. There, there's no jobs in Darjeeling. So I want to um, I want to move into the kind of fair trade conversation because that was a, a big focus of your work. And you know, you I, I feel like in the the reading that I've done, you know. Fair trade is not kind of delivering for these workers on the promises that I, as maybe a consumer drinking tea with my breakfast, think it is. And I'm wondering if you can start to unpack that a little bit for us. Right. And so I think right on, on those, those fair trade packages that we, we buy, I'm kind of the, the number one thing that's told to us is that people who are participating in the fair trade system or producers that are participating in the fair trade system get a better yield, a monetary yield for the whatever they're growing, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and that's just not the case for plantation workers because those wages that I kind of um, discussed before are set um, by state, by state uh, you know, mandated wage agreements. 
Um, so every plantation worker, no matter if it's a fair trade, an organic plantation, or whatever kind of certification it might have, each worker makes the same exact wage. A fair trade plantation cannot guarantee workers any higher wage. So it's kind of that, 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 that distillation of as consumers what we think fair trade is, that fair trade really can't physically, you know, it's, improb- it's impossible to kind of yield higher wages um, on plantation. So is the majority of, you know, are, are, if I'm drinking Darjeeling, does it only come from plantations? I mean, how do we get a sense of, like, making better choices as consumers with regards to our tea consumption that's, you know, reflecting kind of our values with regards to how food is being produced? Right. So, I mean, most tea that is produced um, in the post-colonial world um, is produced on plantations. And even the very the very marginal small farmers that they are uh, that that there are um, they they have to sell their tea often to um, what are called bot leaf tea factories in India or to just other plantations or and and so even small farmers rely on the plantation system it, it is this mega it's this behemoth um, within uh, within kind of the tea, tea production in the post-colonial world. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's hard to kind of escape. So it's hard to kind of buy, to, 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 to try to use your consumption to buy something that's not produced on a plantation. Because even, you know, even these small farms, you know, are implicated in, are implicated in the production, of, of the plantation production system. You're not painting a very optimistic picture for me. What do you do as a tea drinker to feel okay about the tea you're consuming? Um... I'm, I'm honest about the fact that it's that it is an oppressive system, and I, you know, try to drink and to consume less, and maybe not to consume or to feel that you know by consuming more that I'm doing something necessarily good. And I know that's not necessarily optimistic, but I think the thing that's most problematic with fair trade is that it, it makes us feel that we can, you know, kind of overcome or undo the historical legacies of consumption that really, that, that, that exacerbated or, or produced, you know, marginalization in the third world in the first place, that, that, that you know, call, you know that, that made tea plantations uh, an answer to a question of, you know, of supply and demand. Um, and fair trade, you know, nothing can undo that. Um, so, I, you know, just to kind of, you know, be with that, to be with that problem, to be with that trouble. Is, is something that we should do when we can, we consume these colonial products. And it's important to kind of note that what, what, what products fair trade works with? They're all colonial kind of products. They're all plantation based products. Certainly, you know, there's, there's small farmers that produce them as well. But, you know, it's coffee. It's tea. It's bananas. It's sugar. I mean, these, 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 these crops are implicated in the dispossession of, of, of umpteen number of people and, you know, the transformation of landscapes across the world. Um, so that's, I mean, that's what I kind of think about when mm-hmm. I drink tea. And I do drink tea. Um, and I, you know, I bring back tea every year from, from you know, when I go to Darjeeling. Um, but that's kind of what I think about. I don't think about how my consumption practices necessarily make, make things better, unfortunately. And I'm curious, you know, when you're looking to other kind of major tea producing areas of the world, China, Japan, how does India sit in that context? Um, do we have any sense of of um, the impact of our tea drinking choices when we look from continent to continent? Um Again, and I mean, so I, I, my work is in, is in the post, I focus on the post-colonial world. Um, China and Japan are, are very different stories. They have very different histories. And as an anthropologist, right, I always kind of want us to think about the fact that, you know, not, 
not every everywhere is is not the same, right? And that mm-hmm. that, that universalized kind of system can't can't uh, you know can't be applied without kind of massive transformations or or kind of thinking about the local kind of dynamics, particularly um, state based governmental dynamics that exist. Um, so. I mean, it's different. India is different than Sri Lanka. India is different than Kenya. India is different than, you know, Japan and China um, for, for lots and lots of reasons. Um, but, I mean, the, the major difference being between China and Japan, say, for example, is kind of a history of tea growing and uh, the plantation system. Yeah, and I thought that was like, I mean, so the kind of resistance of being able to put things in kind of like one you know, one bucket that's kind of like easy to understand, I think, is essentially what feels like to me the kind of point of your work is like looking at mm-hmm. this, you know, these things. If we're thinking about these big issues, these big ideas of fairness and value and, and, and justice, that we can't essentially separate them out from the the kind of historical context. Um, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. That's. I mean, tea is not the same everywhere. Coffee is not the same everywhere. Take a crop; it's not the same everywhere because um, it, you know it is made different by the context it is in. And similarly, justice, for example, doesn't mean the same everywhere. Excellent. Well, Sarah, what is the best way for folks to purchase your book? Um, it's you can. It's, it's available on on Amazon or, or the the University of California Press has a beautiful website, and it is um, available um, at ucpress um, dot dot com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today to kind of give us some broad strokes uh, as we start to think about agriculture production in different parts of the world. It's been really great having you. Great. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking. So stay tuned. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we will be on the line with Peter Rosenblum, who is a professor of international law and human rights at Bard College. And we're going to continue our discussion on tea and tea production in Northeast India. So hang tight. You're listening to The Farm Report, and we'll be right back. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. 
All of us at Cain encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cain5.com. All right, we are back. You're tuned into the Farm Report. And in this half of the show, we are joined on the line by Peter Rosenblum. Peter is a professor of international law and human rights at Bard College and most recently is author, co-author of a report, The More Things Change, The World Bank, Tata, and Enduring Abuses on India's Tea Plantations. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So I'm curious, how did you get engaged in the world of tea? Um, well, my partner, Ashwini Sukhtankar, had been involved in labor rights and um, transnational labor rights issues for a long time, and I've been involved in um, other kinds of human rights issues. And um, we were in India when the Fair Trade Labeling Organization was looking um, to investigate the um, its own um, higher labor standards in the tea sector. And at that point, um, Ashwini took on the work, and I came along as a an, as an unpaid consultant. And that opened up to us to the world of plantations and certifications and labor conditions on the plantations. Yeah, so in, in the executive summary of your report, you know, I was reading that, that tea plantations in India employ more than a million permanent workers and perhaps twice as many seasonal laborers, uh, making it the largest private sector employer in the country. And, you know, we were talking in the first part of the show with uh, Sarah Besky out at uh, the University of Michigan, whose work focuses primarily on the Darjeeling region. Um, and y- this report was focused more um, on Assam. Is that correct? That's right. And I, um, I, you know, by the way, I, I, we had met Sarah Besky when we started our fair trade work, and we're really blown away by the quality of her work. And uh, and then as we moved on, we stayed in touch. But it's true that this project involves what we think of more as industrial tea production in Assam. Assam is a so everything that says English breakfast tea is a psalm tea. And, you know, one thing that I didn't realize until I started working in the tea world is there's only two bushes. There's a psalm bush and China bush. And the rest is soil and conditions. So a psalm is a very particular place in the tea world. Huge story in terms of the history of tea and colonialism and, um, and in terms of the numbers of people employed in the sector as well. Well, so I want to get a little bit of the lay of the land, um, you know, over the course of the last century. Um, and I'm hoping you can talk us through a little bit the, the 1951 Plantations Labor Act, um, you know, what that is and, and why it came about. So um, the, the, the story of plantations was a story where largely the British government encouraged British planters to come in and take over large swaths of land, which remained owned by the state, but controlled by the planters. And the planters um, really, they, they ran what is one step removed from the world of slavery. Indentured servitude, um, labor restrictions, they brought in tribal workers from a neighboring province, and they controlled their lives. And um, the better side of that is can be called paternalism. They give them food, they give them housing, they give them education and health care. And the worst side is really the um, bonded labor or indentured servitude. And the, the, the purpose of what, what the law did when India became independent and soon afterwards was rather than 
breaking up the plantations and and bringing the state in and giving land to the workers, the state basically tried to raise the level of paternalism to a reasonable level. So to try to make the paternalism into a requirement that, in fact, the planter has to provide education, has to provide health care, has to provide rations and, and other um, elements of life. And, um, and, and in many ways, you know, it, it, that's why the, the law embodies a kind of ambivalence. On the one hand, these are important rights and needs that should be met by the planters. On the other hand, even if they were met, what we would have is kind of the perfection of a of a very paternalist system that still maintains the uh, the plantation structure. So, kind of fast forwarding to more more recent history and and the focus of your report, you were looking at the amalgamated plantations private LTD. So, can you give us a sense of what the what the a kind of stated goal of that um, project was? Well, so what, what, what's happened in the tea sector, in this industrial sector, is something that we saw in globalization and other fields before, including apparel and electronics. Companies find out that the real money is made in being a brand and in marketing, and that having workers and employees is risky business, and you can lose a lot on it, and they'd rather just get out of that business and be free of them. And so one of the world's largest tea companies um, Unilever, the world's largest, just got out of the plantation business from one day to the next. The second largest is, is Tata, which is a company that we tend not to know that well in the West, although if you tell people that Tata owns Jaguar and Land Rover and 8 o'clock coffee, people realize it's already in your lives. It's an Indian-based company, but it owns a lot of Western brands. And it was Tata that decided to sell its plantations, but in order to do it, it did it in this very creative way where it brought the World Bank in and set up this company that you referred to, this APPL, Amalgamated Plantations. And so it turned this this, this investment into a kind of development project with World Bank investment and the promise to live up to standards even higher than the Plantation Labor Act standards. So, um, you know, it seems like the 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 passage of the the Plantations Labor Act and the the APPL kind of both sold to I don't know the public or to consumers as as, as projects that had the the interest maybe not the best interest but the interest of the plantation workers in mind. But I feel like you found the reality of that was was not the case on the ground. And maybe you can give us some examples of, um, you know, what we're hearing and then maybe what you were kind of actually seeing. Yeah, I think the, the tragedy that we're in right now is that companies now realize that they have to say that they are socially responsible and they can be certified by Rainforest Alliance, by Fair Trade, by SA8000, which is another of these certification bodies, the World Bank has its own set of standards, and they can say it, but actually they realize that they've gotten away for so long without doing anything that, that they haven't done anything now either. So what happened was Tata and APPL and the World Bank said they were living up to all these higher standards, 
And the fact of the matter is they're not even living up to the standards of the, of the PLA of 1950. And what this means is that you walk onto the plantations, you walk into the labor living quarters where people live, and houses are crumbling, the, the latrines are, are just repulsive, and just nothing new has even been built there in years except with UNICEF support and their inferior. The water systems are terrible. Waterborne diseases are a problem. The doctors are just are nasty and brutal with the, uh, with the workers. And workers, if even to get sickly, they have to show up three times a day at the hospital so that if they were sick, they would never be able to do it in order to get sickly. Um, and then there's just, then there's other things like the fact that since 1960, the law has been gender neutral, but they still enforce it in a way that is privileging only, uh, men and their wives as opposed to the husbands of female workers. So there's a lot of obvious violations and it's, it, they're really obvious. It's, it, it's not a mystery. It's just the fact that they've gotten away with it for so long that, that people treat this as isolated, hard to get to, no one knows what happens there. And so it kind of drifted off the screens of the uh, of world opinion and world awareness. If, if 20 years ago, if you said to the company, you're not living up to the standards of the Plantation Labor Act, they would have said, yeah, yeah, we know that. Because it, it, nobody denied it 20 years ago. Now they're not only denying it, but they're claiming they're living up to even higher standards. So, I mean, as, as a tea drinker, this leaves me feeling like a, a little bit at, at, at a loss. You know, if I'm trying to you know, make responsible decisions. Um, and, you know, you're kind of throwing out all the labels that I kind of look to for guidance and telling me that I, I can't do that anymore. So, um, you know, what what can we do? What, what should we be doing? You know, how do we, you know, as folks who aren't going to focus our life on, you know, working to change um, the lives of these plantation workers, but have an investment in, you know, making sure that our purchasing dollars are reflecting our values as consumers. What's our role here? You know, the, the, I don't want to, like, to despair. I believe that these systems, these certification mechanisms, they give us levers, but they don't work by themselves. And so we have to use those levers. The good news after our, when we first did our report, the company denounced us and claimed we were defaming them. But over the next weeks, the company mobilized resources. They've actually been using money to improve housing. They've done their own social audit. They're doing other things so that they recognize that if the pressure is on them, that they're going to have to live up to these standards. So I don't want to give up on fair trade or on SA 8000, but I want to bother those guys. I want to, I want to, I want to tell them that, that they are not living up to what they claimed. I think fair trade is in real trouble because I, and maybe you heard this from Sarah Besky, but I think they got involved without at all understanding the complexity of plantation structures. And so I think fair trade tea is from India is not better than other teas from India. There's no reason to think you're getting anything better by, by buying fair trade. I think that you've got to, you've got to, to, to use the labels, but be active consumers, write letters. Write emails. Social accountability, SA8000 responds. Fair trade will hear it. Organizations like Equal Exchange and others that are part of the fair trade movement have recognized that the, that the fair trade labeling organizations are in trouble. And so there are places to go to support 
the, to agitate. I don't want to give up these labeling mechanisms and the, and the, the, the certifications, but I know that they don't work by themselves. So kind of the checks and balances, you know, we as consumers are providing those checks by essentially, it sounds a little bit like, I don't know, poking the bear, but like, just kind of like, hey, we're watching, we're asking, we're paying attention. And frankly, that's a lot of it. The best, the thing that makes me happiest about my report, uh, the report that Ashwini and I did, is that at this moment, there are, there are, there are a large number of Indian NGOs and journalists who are starting to go to these plantations and report on them and people who are local workers' organizations that recognize that now people care again, and they're going and they're interviewing people. And that's, that could just break the logjam and reopen an awareness. And can you talk a little bit about kind of the, you know, reports like this, you know, this, this piece of work that you were able to do, um, how is that kind of, how is that funded? How is that made possible? Because I also want to think like in this discourse, you know, there's like us on the consumer level kind of, you know, poking the bear and, and, and staying in touch with regards to accountability. But oftentimes we are dependent on folks in positions like yours who are going to be doing this in-depth research. And, and who are the folks that, you know, you need support from in order to pursue this type of investigative work? Well, that's a great question. I mean, in the end, at the end of the day, we did this research entirely on um, research, university research funding. I was based at Columbia Law School first and now at Bard College, and, and I decided that the way to do this was just to use research money and, and no other funds. Um, the NGOs that are now working on, in, the, in, in the key area in the country, are they get scraps of funding from groups like ActionAid, which is a UK-based charity. Um, some of them get may get money through Ford Foundation or others. The, there's a group called Accountability Council that's doing great work, and a group called Nazdeek, and they're both really pursuing these these issues with the tea worker organizations in Assam. But the but the funding is is very limited, and um, the, the the organizations that we that we used to rely on more like Oxfam. Um, some of the Dutch funders that were very active in supporting this kind of work are, 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 are by and large pulling out of it. They're just, they're not, they don't treat, they don't, they don't do the research in India as much anymore because they consider it to be moving towards being a mid-level country. So it's a little shaky. Um, but I, but I must say still that the, the journalists are, are there and they're, they're, as soon as there's some interest, there was a New York Times piece was done on this, and the journalists went there, and others were there, and when we held a press conference in Delhi, we had a, a packed room, even though elections were going on. Um, so it's, it's hard to find the support, but it's still, uh, it's, it's still worthwhile and still happening. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing I find so interesting is, uh, you know, as eaters, you know, we're sitting down to breakfast, lunch, dinner, kind of taking that pause to look at the items on our plate and in our glasses and, you know, our responsibility is essentially to kind of know what we're consuming and and what the impacts of that are along the chain. And so, um, you know we can push that button too and kind of understanding the, the landscape and, and what to support and what to be thinking about um, and the responsibility and where those things lie. You know, it's just, it's, it, it's a lot, but I, I don't know. I for one find it, it, you know, exciting and engaging and part of what makes being an eater in, you know, 2014 mm. so great. 
I, I do I do believe that everybody's you know it's I, it's may seem trivial, but it's about responding on websites. It's about writing emails. These certifying organizations are very sensitive, and when these companies start to hear and feel the pressure, and they know their organizations are serious, it, it affects them too. So it's a it's a lever that I think that the the, the every consumer can activate to some degree. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking some time to share a little bit of your research and knowledge. Thank you. It was a pleasure. For folks who want to find the report, it's called The More Things Change, The World Bank, Tata, and Enduring Abuses on India's Tea Plantations. Just pop it into Google. It'll come up for free. You can read it and find out more about uh, Peter's work and the work of others like him. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Farm Report. Today's episode was co-produced by Rodney North of Equal Exchange. want to send a big thanks for putting me in touch with both Sarah and Peter. We hope you will um, continue to listen. We have 35 weekly shows covering the world of food and drink. They're all available for free on our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. You can also find us on Stitcher Smart Radio. Make sure to check out their new Listen Later feature or visit us on iTunes. No matter how you find us, definitely stay tuned in. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.